open our Bibles to Psalm chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 16. As we recognize, if we just celebrate for children, obviously this is the week of Halloween. Now listen, I have a cousin, I've told you this before, I'm going to bring it up once more. I have a cousin who tells me Halloween is her favorite holiday. And I keep telling her every time Halloween comes by every year, she says, Kirk, that's my favorite holiday. And my response to her is what? It's not a holiday. The woman's crazy to think this is a holiday. It's not a holiday. And it stands to reason it's not a holiday. Listen, holiday recognizes something historical. Like in history, you know, there's something that happened in which it was historical. It was a moment in history. It resulted in a holiday that we enjoy, like President's Day or the 4th of July. Even coming up in November, Thanksgiving. And your birthday? Mine too, in Memorial Day. Yeah. So we have those great moments in history which produces a holiday. And we have even biblical moments, obviously, that results in holidays like Christmas and Easter. I look on Halloween, I'm thinking, it's just another day. There's nothing special to me about Halloween. I mean, no one is off work. We're still going to school on Halloween. As far as I know, post offices and banks are still open. Even the government is there doing whatever they do. Or they call it working. It's just not a holiday. There's nothing that makes Halloween a holiday. But what it is and what it does do is that it obviously marks the end of the month of October. It's on the 31st, right? Which then does this. It ushers in the last two months of this year. Every year Halloween does that. You recognize that? It's the last of October, and it brings in the last two months of any particular year. That's all it does. But it also serves every year for time for us to reflect. So let us this morning recognize what it is and just stop and reflect. Because as of this morning, I'll just let you know, there's 63 days left. After today, 63 days left in this year. By the way, 57 till Christmas. Just so you know. So here's the thing. Has the year gone as you planned? The last 10 months we need to reflect upon. And has the year gone as you planned? And it's an interesting question if you think about it, because with the 10 months now behind this, it is really kind of time to get I mean, before the holidays get really busy and we get into the moment. Maybe it's time we set aside this day, this week, to reflect upon what's happened so far this year. And maybe to look ahead to find out, well, there's only a little over eight weeks left. So in the time that we've had up to now, have we made any resolutions? Do we have any plans that didn't materialize? Did your plans you have for this year, have they been completed? Did things go well for you? Maybe the plans you made didn't work out because maybe they were your plans, not God's plans. So as we look into the last two months, or really over eight weeks what's left into this particular year, we need to ask ourselves, who guides you through life? And what path really have you chosen? Are you trying to live your life, your path, your way? Or are you really desiring truly to live for God and follow his path? 
And then do you desire to even stick to the path? We choose Psalm chapter 16 today because David is the author. He's giving us a little insight in how we can stick to the path. We're going to change anything about ourselves in the last two months and desire to stick to the path, the godly path. Then David gives us a little insight. So stand with me this morning as we do to honor the reading of the word. I mean, it is Psalm chapter 16. There's 11 verses in this particular psalm. We're going to read all 11 and receive some insight for what David is trying to tell us about how we can stick to the path, the godly path, the one God would have for us to be on. So here we look in Psalm chapter 16, and we find very early in the psalm, back to before even verse 1, you see a little superscription that says this, a mictum of David. Then he says these words, David's writing, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, let me take a moment, Lord, to read a wonderful psalm that can give us some insight and some direction, perhaps, of how we can be able to be on a path, Lord, of living a righteous, godly life for you. And how it also then gives us perhaps a, a, a bit of a roadmap to maybe change course if we're not at all pleased and satisfied in any particular way of what's happened in this previous year, nearly all, 10 months, then, but then let us hear your word and make the, maybe make an appropriate change to have these last two months be as joyous as they possibly can be. So Lord, let us now tune our hearts to you, what you have for us to have today, and be thankful and grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, perhaps the best place to start dissecting the psalm before we get into kind of application is with that superscription. I mentioned it earlier, and here you find Psalm 16, it says, a mictum of David. So the obvious question maybe for all of us then is, what is a mictum? And that's a really good question. Because interestingly, this is the first use of the word mictum in the psalms, but it's not the last. It's repeated in the inscriptions in Psalms 56 through 60. So again, the question really is, then what is the mictum? The Holman Bible Illustrated Dictionary says, well, it really is unclear, but adds that suggestions include the mictum is a musical notation or a title for psalms connected with the men's of sin. And that might be a little bit insightful and maybe a little helpful, but maybe not overly much, because it should be noted that well, there's very little agreement among different people and scholars and pastors about what the meaning of the word really is. 
I mean, it's really greatly disputed about what is a mikdom. Many suggest that it's related to the Hebrew word meaning gold. With that particular thought, Martin Luther designated this psalm then as a golden jewel. Others refer to it simply as engraved or inscribed in gold, undefiled, hidden, secret treasure, or an element of mystery. But truly, no one knows for certain. A point of interest is that all six of the Mictum Psalms end on a happy and triumphal note. The words of Roy Zuck and John Wolver say, this psalm, Psalm 16, the one we're emphasizing today, is a celebration of the joy of fellowship that David realized comes from faith in the Lord. The psalm may have been written when he faced a great danger in the wilderness or opposition in his reign. But notice, wherever it's occasion, David was convinced that because he had come to know and trust the Lord as his portion in life, he could trust him in the face of death. I like to comment, but let me read the last sentence once more. Whatever its occasion, whatever reason the psalm was written, David was convinced that because he had come to know and trust the Lord as his portion in life, he could trust him. He could trust God in the face of death. So if I paraphrase and maybe reword that, I could say then that David knew that he should and could stick to the path. The path that knows the Lord as portion, as his guide, as his refuge, as his security. I mean, David knew there was none other than the Lord he could trust. He knew there was none other than God making could take refuge. He knew, David knew, that God would never leave him nor forsake him. David was keenly aware of God's protection, goodness, and mercy. And that God's way was the one to follow. David knew that the way of God was the one to follow. Now, having said that, it reminds me of what our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, 14. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who, are in, those who enter by it are many. That's the wide gate. Now, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Wide is the gate of destruction, narrows the gate of a heavenly path. So in short, as followers, the disciples of Christ, we should stay on the right path. We should stick to the path that we know we can trust God, we can trust Jesus, and only his path should we be on. The worldly way or the path the way of the world may be intriguing, certainly tempting, and always entertaining, but it inevitably leads you off the road into the ditch, into constant trouble, having great difficulty. And ultimately, as we take the road of the way of the world, you can look back over the last 10 months, or maybe even years of being on that road, well-traveled, and begin to question, well, how did I get here? This is not what I had planned. So the question really becomes then for us this morning, how do we stick to the path? How do we get to and stay on God's chosen path? So we have Psalm 16 to kind of guide us and lead us. And notice, if you will, it can be divided in three particular sections, which will give us some insight and some answers. 
It'd be verses 1 through 4, which will tell us the Lord is my refuge. It'd be verses 5 and 6, which says the Lord is my portion. And the remainder of the psalm, verses 7 through 11, which says the Lord is my counselor in my life. Now, in case you missed it, they'll be presented again, and we can write it down and expand upon each. So let us do so. The first, verses 1 through 4, which says the Lord is my refuge. Interestingly, if you had the King James, I, I've read over the King James several times, so sometimes I've referred to it. It's not my favorite translation, but I notice how it sometimes has words a little different than a more modern translation. So the King James words it a little different. It says, preserve me, in verse 1, preserve me, O God, for indeed do I put my trust. Our translation we're reading from, a little more modern, says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, obviously, in common is, preserve me, O God. With the subtle difference really lying in the end of each translation, which words trust and refuge. So I thought, well, let's not be confused. Let's examine it just a moment. And let's look at each word, trust and refuge. And the trust is just, well, you know what trust is. It's the believing in reliability, the truth or ability of something. I like where it says trust someone or something. It says, commit someone to trust it to commit someone or something to the safekeeping of now refuge then as a noun form it in a place of state of danger or safety from trouble that you go for a place to have security or refuge and but here is expressed as a verb to take refuge as in the psalmist is wanting to obtain shelter safety security but also related to trust, like the trust that it would provide. So really the two words become one of the same. The psalmist, again, David, is expressing the truth of this. That, and he says, in God, he's recognizing, in God, I can find someone. I have the person who can keep me safe and keep me secure, fully trusting in him, knowing that he and he alone will provide the refuge the shelter, the safety that I need, that I desire. David is expressing the truth that I can find this in God, the safety, the security, the refuge. So the question really is this then. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe? David is expressing the truth that I can find all these things I desire and need in life, the shelter, security, all these things I can find in God. But the question for us is, do we believe that the truth that David is expressing. Do we really believe that God will keep us safe and keep us secure? That in Him, and really in Him alone, can I take refuge? I mean, think about, for just a moment, just think about what things we seek. In our lives that we live, think about the things you seek that we believe will tend to keep us safe and secure. Just think about it for a moment. What thing do you think will really keep you safe and secure in life? Because I began to process this in my life last year. Last week, I began to process this in my life. And I thought at least one particular moment, if even not still today, one thing I think keeps me safe and secure, if not God, is money. The very first thing I thought of that people generally think keeps them safe, keeps them secure, is money. And I can surely tell you, that when I was working secular employment as a plant manager for Tyson Foods in Mississippi and in Texas, 
making well over $100,000 a year, even sometimes up to $140,000 a year. I mean, that was my income. I truly can tell you that I believe that kept me and my family safe and secure. That money was it. It's what I needed to provide for my family. That money I had, the income I had coming in, and at least in that particular position, provided for us all the safety, all the security we needed. So at least I was once living in a manner in which I thought money was what kept me safe and what kept me secure. However, money does not provide any security. But yet the worldly way, the worldly thought, the mentality is that it does. Let me ask you, but where do... But does money keep you safe in a storm? Whether the storms is an actual real storm, like tornado, hurricane, whatever, or a storm in life when it suddenly comes upon you, an illness, cancer, whatever, when it suddenly comes into your life and that storm is there, is money your security? Is money your refuge? I mean, no. Money does not keep you secure and safe when the storms of life begin. I mean, interestingly, David is the author of the psalm. I mean, David was not even close to being a rich man. Now, his son Solomon, on the other hand, Solomon had excessive riches. I mean, he's a very wealthy man, Solomon, his son. But David, as David's writing this, I mean, it could be during the time he was king, but it also could be when he was just a shepherd. I mean, the occupation as a shepherd was not known for one who was having excessive income. So most likely it is not when David was even richness. But wherever the occasion, David knew that God provided the shelter and security and the refuge that he needed when a storm suddenly surfaced and suddenly erupted, whether it be for him personally or even his flock. He knew he could find a refuge and shelter, safety, security from God. Now, I say that, and I also recognize, was David perfect in his execution of trusting God for protection and safety? No. I mean, he had worldly tendencies and, and temptations that we often. But David learned through the hardships and other things in life that only God could he trust and truly have refuge. David learned that he should stick to the path, the godly path. And have refuge and shelter, provisions, and goodness. Referring to goodness, I mean, David recognized where his goodness and blessings come from. In verse 2, he said, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you, Lord. There is no good apart from God. I mean, our world may tempt us with any form of goodness, by what they define as goodness, the world will tempt us. But when we take what the world is telling us for goodness, it invariably leads you off the path. So verses 1 through 4 is good insight, it's good information, begin the process of how we want to stick to the path. It tells us that we must recognize, first and foremost, the Lord is my refuge. He's the one I can trust. When the world seems to be untrustful, and dishonest, we can always find honesty and trust in the Lord. So we should seek Him and not the emptiness of the world. 
verses 1 through 4, who want to stick to the path, reminds us the good way to do that is recognize the Lord is my refuge. But David also says in verses 5 through 6, then, to paraphrase it a little bit, he says, the Lord is my portion. In committing David's life, in committing his life to God, David made a great discovery. Listen, David found this. He found a joy in living that did not depend upon fortune or circumstances. Almost sounds like Paul. David found a joy in living that did not depend upon fortune or circumstances. A little bit earlier, I just noted how many people believe, I've been one of them, how money or success keeps them safe and secure. But note, this, it is actually the opposite. It does not keep you safe and secure, no. But notice how the mentality that it does, that money actually is the opposite. The opposite happens. I mean, having money, a great amount of money, or having this tremendous desire to be successful is kind of an entrapment into thinking in our minds that it can buy you happiness. By acquiring much money, I can get all these possessions, I can make myself happy and joyous. Yeah, unfortunately, many people believe that life is to be measured by the nature and extent of one's possessions. But we should know, as Christians, as believers, we should know that life does not consist of an abundance of things, but in a constant relationship with God. Proverbs 11.16 says, Ruthless men retain riches. Ruthless men and women retain riches. And we can understand the proverb to say then that ruthless men and women gain only riches and wealth while they fall short of their relationship with God. Let me say it again. Ruthless men and women gain only riches and wealth. You may think that's the answer, but at the same time quite possibly falling short of your relationship with God. Now, the best biblical illustration I thought of preparing for this morning was the rich young ruler. In Matthew chapter 19, let me just kind of paraphrase what's happened before we get to the point. There was a young man who came up to Jesus. He came up to Jesus saying, Master, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus answered to him, keep the commandments. The guy looks up on Jesus and says, Master, teacher, dude, bro, whatever, I've done those. But dude, which one you mean? So Jesus answers and says, you shall not commit murder. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. All these things he tells them to keep. And the guy answers, I had kept all these. So what thing do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what possessions you have given to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When verse 22 of Matthew 19, write it down, he says, when the, when the rich young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then the classic statement by Jesus in verse 23, he said to the disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All the money in the world that you could ever obtain. You want to win the lottery? Great, go win it, whatever. But all the money in the world will not buy you the kingdom or even obtain you happiness and joy. I found a quote from Benjamin Franklin. He says, money has never made man happy, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. Isn't that true? I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, it isn't going to buy us anything besides possessions that we think that's going to make us happy, but it doesn't. So we go out and buy another possession that still don't make us happy. So all the men in the world, all possessions you have, will never buy the kingdom and never present to you or if you'd obtain happiness and joy. So now the question becomes, okay, well, what does usher in joy and happiness in life? And I believe David in verse 6 provides the answer. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Let me say, happiness and joy comes from knowing that. If something happens to you today, or sometime, unfortunately, something happens to you, happiness comes from knowing you have a beautiful inheritance awaiting for you. God is preparing a wonderful place for you. John chapter 14 tells us of all the specifics. He refers some translations to a mansion that God is preparing for you. A heavenly, beautiful home that awaits you for eternity. That should provide all the joy and happiness we need. A beautiful inheritance awaits you. A beautiful inheritance, godly home awaits you. That is, if you're on the right path. The godly path. The path of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. It's the life that is open to the Lord, but filled with blessings without number. That particular life has a delightful inheritance, a godly heritage. Stick to the path that God has for you and make him your portion. That's what David tells us. But he also tells us finally in verses 7 through 11, the Lord is my counselor in my life. Notice it in, in all these verses, without reading them again, notice how verses 7 and 8, it says, One enjoys the counsel of the Lord, always considering his ways and following his commands. His counsel, or his word, allows all of us to be guided and instructed in every season of life. It's not just for a time or a time. It's for every season in life. For he is our counselor, he directing my path. Psalms 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Enjoy his counsel, enjoy his word. We're thinking, okay, it's old, it's extinct. No, it's the word of God, it's timeless. It has specifics that we can live with in life. It's his word, it's a lamp to our feet. A guide, a light to the path. And notice that following his counsel, following the word, allows us then to withstand tests as they come in life. I mean, the tests will come and go, but the one who follows the Lord, as it says in verse 8, will not be shaken. It says, we are best to set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. How would you like to live through life? When it comes at you really hard and difficult and something begins to happen, you notice because the Lord is your guide, he's your portion, he's your security, he's the one you trust, you will not be shaken. Have you felt it? 
Have you ever been in a situation in life in which it got so hard, so difficult, but it didn't shake you up? Because you knew the Lord is your God. You knew he could take refuge in him. You knew he could trust him. You knew he would take you through it. He would only pick you up and carry you through a difficulty. And you were not shaken from it. That's what David is experiencing. And because he has the Lord, because he's on the right path, and he's not shaken, notice in verse 9, he has gladness in his heart. He says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh always dwells secure. When I read that, I get the sense that, that, that joy is deeply felt. Certainly in his heart, but in his entire being, he's felt joyful. He's having joy and happiness in his entire being because he's on the right path. He's not being shaken from anything that happened. And he knows the Lord is with him. He can rejoice. I think that's the joy that all people should crave. I mean, don't you want joy and happiness? I mean, I think everybody wants joy and happiness. Nobody wants to be grumpy all the time in a bad mood. I think we want joy, we want happiness. And David's saying, you can have joy and happiness stick to the path. I mean, surely be the alternative, right? I mean, he tells the alternative, look, and he says, if you choose not to stick to the right path, you essentially journey to hell. But he says in verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, but let your Holy One see corruption. I hate to even think about the alternative, but it does exist for those who continue to rebel and stay in their own path rather than the path that God would have us to be on. But notice in verse 11, there's a dividend to those who remain and stick to the path. The psalmist declares David in verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 11 could very well be the key verse of the entire psalm. At least in directing us to how we should stick to the path. I mean, he provided he provided insight from the very beginning to now, but verse 11 may be the key because verse 11 itself has three integral parts. First is this, pick the pathway of life. He says, you make known to me, God, you make known to me the path of life. So pick the pathway. So ask yourself, what is the pathway of life I'm on right now? I mean, and don't give the church answer. I mean, we're gathered here today in church and say, okay, my pathway is God. Don't give the real, give it the real answer. What is your real pathway in life? What is it? I mean, is your path focused on your career, your job? Is your path focused on the mighty dollar? Like, it could very well be. Basically, is your path worldly? Because oftentimes it is. Because we're in this world, we're so easily influenced by the world. And then it becomes our path. Many times it becomes our path without even knowing it or realizing it. We choose worldly ways versus the biblical way. Why? Because we just get caught up in it. We just start living life. And as life gets hard, we just desire to be happy. We want to be happy. 
everyone wants to be happy. Happy, 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 right? I mean, who wants to be sad? All of us want a piece of the good life. Or we think we deserve it. So much so that we'll listen to the world and make compromise. We'll develop our own plan to succeed. And we ultimately fail. And we end up miserable and broken. Is that where you are 10 months gone by in 2023? If so, maybe it's become repetitive. Change something about it. Stick to the path. The path of listening to God, living, obeying his commands, and honoring him with your thoughts, your actions, and your words. Just live out the word of God. Because the word of God is a very good thing, and it is our path of life. We should choose to live each day. Come across a story about a son who went off to college. When you get older, you know, you're not quite there yet. Some of you, James and Amanda, don't think about that yet, but it will happen. You'll have to see your, your children, all four of them will probably one day go off to college. It'll be a time of debt for you, yeah. Okay, but your children probably go off to college someday. You know, young parents have had to look forward to. I've been there, done that, okay? But the kids will go off to college someday. There's a story about a couple who had their son to go off to college. When he left for his freshman year at the university, his parents gave him a Bible. It says, son, here's the Bible. Here's the word. Read it each day, and it's going to be great help for you. Well, then later, as he got into college in his first year, he began sending letters back to his parents. What do college kids do when they send letters back to the parents? Actually, they'll send letters to them more to kind of call them or text them. What do they say in the text or letters? Send me money. Mom, dad, about money, send me some money. They would send back, not a letter, again, probably text, whatever, Telling him, son, read your Bible. Citing a specific chapter and a specific verse. He replied back, Mom, Dad, I'm reading my Bible, but I still need the money. Semester break comes. Fall break, Christmas, whatever. He came home. At the end of the semester, his parents told him, son, we know you've not been reading your Bible. Perplexed look on his face. Well, what made you think that? He said, because with a specific verse, in chapter and book, we had $10 bills and $20 bills inserted there. That's how they knew he hadn't been reading the Bible. Now, look, that's a trick you can play on your kids later. Okay? They're not in the room. I mean, Charlotte can't comprehend it yet. So make sure you keep that later for your children in college. If you attach money in their Bible, say, son, daughter, here's the Bible. Read it every day. They're going to ask you for money. Say, look at 2 Corinthians 5.12. And they'll think, what's that about? And if they do, they'll find the $20 bill there, right? But the Bible tells us how to live. They gave the son the Bible because it's their instructions. The Bible has an acronym. Perhaps you heard it before. The acronym, B-I-B-L-E, Bible, right, is Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. It is our guide. It is the path. We must follow it. And it gives us great joy. It gives us a pathway of life. But notice how verse 11 also tells us then, the three segments of verse 11 also says, pursue the presence of joy. It says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. So how do we get into the place where joy is? Well, the psalmist declares, quite simply, it's found in God's presence. 
That tells me if I want to experience joy, I got to get, I need to get in God's presence. So the question really becomes, well, how do I get there? Or where is God's presence? And the answer is this. It's quite simple. It's in praise and worship. We have the absolute best band in any church in Oka City, in Indiana, in the United States, in the world. Josh, right? Give me an amen now. We have the best. I've been other places I've seen that I know. Okay, people listening, people listening later will argue about that, but I know. But we enter his presence with praise and worship. When we praise and worship God, it just brings us into his presence. Psalms 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. And as we worship God, then we walk through the doorway into the presence of God. And into his presence, as psalmist tells us, fullness of joy. So we've got to stay connected. How we stay connected? John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy remain in you, and your joy may be full. Spend time with God, be connected. Praise and worship, come into his presence, into his presence with joy. Spend time with God, not just on a weekly basis, but each and every day spend time with God. Come into his presence, give him praise, give him worship. You can do it through song, through prayer, through meditation, through reading his word. Come into his presence. In his presence is joy. And then David says also in verse 11, participate in rivers of pleasure. He said, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, do you feel like you're a participant in the rivers of pleasure from the Lord? Do you feel like you're a participant with pleasures forevermore? Here's what David wrote in Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Have you taken a drink from the river of pleasures from the Lord? Or just ask maybe differently, do you simply trust God? Do you trust God? Do you want to know why people put their trust really in God? It's because of the preciousness of his loving kindness. I mean, he's just so good to us. He's so good to us, even when we don't deserve it. We rebel, we sin, we do silly things. He's still good to us. It's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. And those who trust in God's loving kindness are abundantly satisfied. And I think that's what every person really wants. To be abundantly satisfied. I mean, people, if you think about it, people... They, they don't recognize that's what they're looking for, but they, they're searching, they're looking. And, and so people really want to be abundantly satisfied to be taken care of. And, and the proof is in the fact that when, the, when people go to various things to be abundantly satisfied, like drugs and alcohol and other types of sexual perversions and things, they, they go somewhere to seek how they can be abundantly satisfied. They're looking for something to, uh, to satisfy them, but there's only one thing. Here it comes. Only one thing in life that will satisfy the deep longings of your heart. It is the presence of the living God. 
being in the presence of God will truly satisfy you abundantly. Now, let me tell you, religion won't do it. I mean, Nicodemus was a religious man. I've been watching The Chosen that shows in The Chosen that Nicodemus went and sought Jesus. And, and it even shows in The Chosen how Nicodemus was lurking in the shadows. It didn't tell us in Scripture, but it, it's kind of paraphrasing, kind of painting paint a picture that Nicodemus was a curious man. He had religion. He knew the law. He knew. He was a Pharisee, well-known Pharisee, greatly respected Pharisee, but he knew something was missing for him to be completely abundantly satisfied. And he was curious in about Jesus. And he lurked in the shadows and went out of the dark to be able to question but still fell short of completely accepting Jesus. So I suggest to you that Nicodemus, at least at that point, was not abundantly satisfied because he did not come to Jesus. But Jesus is the answer for all of us to be abundantly satisfied in life. To have joy, to have pleasures forevermore. It's in Jesus. He's alive. He's real, right? And the only, well, only Jesus can give life, can give pleasures abundantly. Which is why David declares in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life, God, in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore that supplied by Jesus. Listen, here's the thing. Then marching all around to maybe say this ultimately. If you are not enjoying the previous 10 months of 2023, then change it. That's what you need to hear today. If you've not been enjoying the previous 10 months, we're almost to the completion of 10 months. If you've not been enjoying it, not been having abundantly satisfied, then change it. Change something. Change the path you're on and listen to the counsel of the Lord. Redirect your path back to him. Maybe you're once on that path, maybe redirect it back to him. Accept his will for you. But take a step on the path, the godly path, because that's the only path that produces everlasting joy. Father, Lord, we thank you for providing that path for us, the path of happiness, abundance, and joy, Lord, goodness. We thank you for providing that path for us. And we recognize today that path only comes through Jesus. It's living a life for Jesus, not for self. It's living a life, Lord, not of our own accord, our own path, our own will, but to accept your will, your way. So Lord, for all of us today, even those listening perhaps later, I pray that we redirect our path today to match yours. That we follow directly in your footsteps. Lord, I pray you'll give us courage to even do so. I pray, Lord, you'll allow us then to move our life to be a reflection of you and your image. Lord, today, let us make that change. If in any way we've been dissatisfied with how this year has been, let's recognize that today is a day we can let the old go away and make ourselves new. And it only happens to Jesus. And today we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.